Rosemary, I saw that TikTok is now the number one uh, advertising source in the world. It's surpassing uh, Google and Facebook, which is very odd. So I guess we're going to have to transition ourselves from the YouTube world over to TikTok. And I was hoping not to do that because, you know, it's TikTok. Yeah, I'm not. But I'm the, not going it, to TikTok. <laughs> it's hard enough to get my videos for like 15 minutes. I'm not supposed to communicate any kind of meaningful amount of engineering in 60 seconds. Well, yeah. I, I'm just getting familiar with uh, B-Real. And I think that has something to do with just uh, engineers have a proclivity to talk about things longer than we probably should. And this episode's with, not going to be one of those cases, with, actually, because... We we, yeah. we 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 talked about Vesta's sales and they had a huge quarter in the fourth quarter last last year, 2022, uh, five billion over five billion euros. That's a it's an amazing number. And meanwhile, GE Vernova's market cap looks to be about 13 billion dollars in total when they break off in GE in beginning of 2024. So there's a, a big difference between those two. And, and then we take a quick look this week at Equinor and RWE. Uh, working on some hydrogen projects. And of course, Rosemary has a lot of insight on that. Uh, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, gray hydrogen, no hydrogen, all electric. Uh, <laughs> and, and then we, uh, there's a really interesting concept coming out of Purdue. And I, I kind of poo poo it, but I don't mean to poo poo it in this episode because it, it is, I, I like new ideas. And Purdue has a new idea about using essentially a hydro drive, using water to uh, drive turbine, uh, drive generators using uh, the turbines as a, a power source. And it makes sense. And then we, at, at the end here, we talk about EOLINK, and they're, they have that pyramidal shaped uh, wind turbine, very similar to T Omega here in the States. But EOLINK is massively ahead, and they're going to make a demonstrator, a uh, five megawatt demonstrator. That's going to be a big wind turbine. They're hoping to have that in the water by 2024 for an offshore demonstrator. Genius. And I'm glad that, I'm glad that they're doing it. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and the pride of Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime is. Wind Energy Podcast. <laughs> Well, the last quarter of 2022 for Vestas was apparently outstanding. Uh, they had <laughs> they announced a, a couple of different things. Uh, 22 onshore wind order, wind orders for a combined capacity of 3.37 gigawatts, and there's a consensus in the marketplace that they have another 1.1 gigawatts that was unannounced orders. So they think they have about 4.5 gigawatts sold in a quarter. And Joel, wow. that, that's a lot of gigawatts in that's a quarter, wicked. right? Yeah. That's big time. Yeah. And yeah, that's really good. So they think that fourth quarter, just in the fourth quarter, that the cash flow in was about a little over 5 billion euros, which is a record for Vestas. Now, I, I haven't done the math here, but it seems like Vestas is raising prices. <laughs> is that what it seems like to you two? I think they've got to be. I mean, all, all everything you've heard in the marketplace about the OEMs not being able to make it, not being able to make it, they've got to be raising their prices as a strategy. It, you know, it kind of uh, reminds me of uh, the Henrik's interview with Neighbor Energy from the other week about yes. him saying, Good. 
that that the the actual OEMs are picking who they're talking. They're getting there's they're getting so choosy with people that they're talking to the ones that they know are going to be installing things. And if you're not or your 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 pipeline isn't that big for development, they're not even really spending that much time with you. So it shows right. that it's a you know it's a it's a kind of a seller's market there. And you can see what that's what Henrik said. It's a seller's market. And you can see with the increase in orders here that it looks like Vestas is fully taking advantage of that. Well, it's more than a million dollars per megawatt. I'm just running the numbers. It's like 1.1 somewhere in there, just ballparking it, which is yeah. higher than it has been in quite a while. So the it appears the OEMs have stopped taking orders temporarily and then pushed pricing up, restarted the sales network, and at least Vestas has done really well, which is fantastic because the big concern in the marketplace is if Vestas isn't making money, the industry is in big trouble. That's a really good sign. In the report, did they say anything about geographic regions, about where this, these yeah, they, four and a half they, are at? They said that um, the reason why the price per megawatt has pushed higher was because of a giga order in Australia. So it's nice to know that we're, we're ah, obviously playing go, more Rosemary. than the global average. <laughs> but that said, I mean, there's, so, there's such a big pipeline in Australia and people are struggling to actually get turbines. So I guess it makes sense that, you know, the consequence of that is that you have to pay a bit more. And if we are paying more mm -hmm. in Australia, if, you know, higher turbine price can still make a profitable project, then means we should be, you know, moving towards the front of the queue. So I guess that is good for renewable energy in Australia. So as part of this, since there's so many different countries pushing 2030 end dates and 2040 end dates, that really does put the manufacturers in the driver's seats in a sense, right? In the U.S., we're talking about 120,000 wind turbines in that time frame. I don't know if Australia can even get into that list of deliverable uh, on wind turbines in that span just because there's so much demand in the United States plus in Europe you probably are going to pay a premium and the OEMs know that for sure right it's like buying a car that they don't have any on the lot you're going to pay more for it no matter what because of scarcity yeah but I think it's good I mean the prices have been too low for the last few years and you know all of the yeah. major manufacturers yeah, I mean. have been in real trouble and it's something you know like I'm not an, an economist in any sense but I have struggled to to make sense of the fact that you know there's so much demand and people can't get their hands on turbines as fast as they want and yet profits are so constrained it seemed to me you know like the obvious obvious solution to all those problems is to raise prices a little bit and then you, <laughs> You know, um, it it won't be such a problem for the manufacturers, and the you know the more profitable projects can still get their turbines. So uh, yeah, it is kind of working out in in the way that it needs to, I think. And and this is just onshore as, as well to talk about, right? Right. So this has nothing. Right. This doesn't count offshore sales. Um, and I think the offshore sales market is a little bit, of course, is a little bit different. Um, it's still going to be a seller's market there, but you've seen so many of these lease auctions going boom, 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 all over the place. So I, I listen, I re-listened to the Henrik Staver thing today. So that, that's, uh, in, in my mind, but, um, I think that that's also, I mean, the four and a half gigawatts of onshore is crazy because those numbers are, are a lot lower too, right? So these are 3.6s right. and 4.0s and 2.8s. Yeah. There's so no th there's, they're smaller. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a that's a lot of turbines. That's a lot of a lot of a lot of work around the world for that too. So while Vestas has a pretty good market value based on that quarter, I'd assume, uh GE Vernova, which will be the GE wind turbine and gas turbine business uh that 
when GE finally splits into three blocks, uh, Vernova will be out on its own. And that's supposed to happen in 2024. So GE Healthcare broke off uh, in January 1st of this year. So their own standalone company that leaves two divisions left, essentially the aerospace division and the energy division. Uh, there is some real concern about GE Vernova uh, valuation when that happens. So they have a year to kind of straighten things out. And their CEO at GE Vernova has been uh, trying to get the cash flow going in the proper direction. And it sounds like they have positive cash flow. Now, when Joel, when you and I talk about positive cash flow, uh, it means that we can go to the bank and pull $100 out. That doesn't necessarily mean that in corporate terms. Positive cash flow means at a start at a certain start date, there's more money coming in than flowing out. It doesn't mean that you don't have orders on the books that you're losing money for because GE does. So they're expecting to lose about $2 billion this year, which is not great. Uh, and the market is indicating that once GE Vernova breaks off, it's going to be worth about $13 billion, which seems extraordinarily low for such a such a business that is going to be in high demand. What is happening here? We just talked right about uh, Vesta's having $5 billion worth of orders in one quarter. Right. And then we're talking about one of their biggest competitors only being valued at 13 billion possibly next year. It's crazy to think. Um, I mean, maybe this is the time that some some big operator scoops them up. I mean, that's a, that's a well, possibility, it, right? There's there's a couple operators out there that are worth a lot more than that. Sure, I did a little bit of research when I saw that number uh, pop up in in a couple of news articles. I thought, well, thirteen billion dollars. You know, it's still thirteen billion dollars. It's nothing to shake a stick at. It, it's, yeah. it's a significant amount of money, but there's a lot of companies in that range. And I'll give you a couple that are in the 12 to kind of $14 billion range in the U.S. Snap-on Tools, <laughs> Domino's Pizza, and MGM Resorts. So it may make more sense for GE Vernova to open a casino. <laughs> yeah, or, or, <laughs> or, make or, or get tool trucks and drive them around everywhere. Because I know those Snap-on right. guys are brutal on prices. They, they're not afraid to raise <laughs> Yes, their. they are. <laughs> um, but I mean, so in that same breath, right, we looked the other, the other, uh, couple of weeks ago at some prices of some of these large operators, right? Like Orsted was valued yeah. at 77 billion. Uh, I think Invenergy was 33 and Nextera was somewhere in between them. Um, right. and those are of course three massive operators that are all over the world doing a lot of cool things, uh, building a lot of great wind farms, um, and, and driving value across, the, across the energy, uh, chain right supply chain right fantastic yeah. for them but to have the have the oems which is the people creating the things for these companies to survive not be va be valued at you know uh sixth of the value of or a fifth of the value of what uh orsted is that's crazy to me i think it's a little low i think it's it's low and it, it should be driven back up you know i did another quick look looking at the auto manufacturers in the United States to see what their market cap was. Both GM and Ford are roughly worth $50 billion. So they seem awful low too for a size, comparative size of business, right? When you're making a, you have several production lines, you're making cars, you're making them around the world. You think that GM would be, have a higher street value. 
Tesla is like $350 billion. It's like seven times what GM or Ford is at the moment. So there, there is this weird dynamic that is happening. And maybe GE's just caught up in that, that industrial companies are not valued as highly as they once were. But as we drag more manufacturing back into America, they may have more value. And Maybe that's what GE is hoping for, just giving Vernova a little bit of breathing space. Say, here's another year. Get it together. We're going to fund you, Make get you squared up on the books, but let's get into some real valuation here. So, so some of those things that you talk about, though, as well, with like Tesla being valued so high, some of that is yeah. – is, is market driven, right? It's not not sure. not physical market, but the 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 street market, Wall Street markets, right? Right. Yeah. So it, it's for but the but that goes back into play here. That means that GE Vernova as a future company in the world is not being valued that high, which seems no. odd to us, odd to me, for sure. That this is what we were like: clean energy transition, renewable energies. How is one of the biggest players in it being valued so low? Um, you know, we've heard for a long time that some of these OEMs are relying on their service models to make profits. Is this GE Vernova? Is that going to, is all of the service stuff go underneath that as well? Or is that just the manufacturing? Yes. No, that's all so that, of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just surprising. It's, it's surprising. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. Equinor and RWE are agreeing to work together to develop large-scale value chains, what they're calling a value chains, to uh, work on low-carbon hydrogen. All right, so that sets off alarm bells with everybody, right? As soon as we say low-carbon hydrogen, what that means is blue hydrogen and rosemary. You want to explain what blue hydrogen is? Yeah, so blue hydrogen is, uh, you make hydrogen in the same way that most hydrogen is made these days with um, steam methane reforming. And so the, yeah, when you when you crack it, the methane, then you end up with CO2 and hydrogen. And currently the CO2 just goes into the atmosphere. Um, that's grey hydrogen is uh, what it's called when it's produced in that way. And blue hydrogen is just the same, but they take the CO2 emissions, capture it and store it somewhere. So it's... Uh, Right. Nice in theory. Um, definitely the engineering is, is all there to make it work. But when you look at the history of carbon capture projects, there are very, very, very few that have actually captured and stored the amount of um, carbon dioxide that they said that they would. Um, yeah. So I think most people are skeptical about why would that be any different with hydrogen. And for me personally, if you're going to do a carbon capture project, why do you need to make a new source of carbon dioxide emissions to put it, the carbon capture project on? Take your carbon capture project ah, and put it on some existing source of CO2 emissions. And then, you know, no one would have a problem, a problem with that. So this is part of the energy transition, Rosemary. So you have to, you have to play along for a little bit. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to shut down those coal fire plants they just started up again in Germany and convert them into hydrogen-ready plants. So they want to run these power plants with hydrogen. And as part of that, they got to they gotta have a source of hydrogen to start that. And it won't be immediately done by offshore wind, but that's where they're headed. So it seems like there's just a temporary step like, okay, we're going to make some blue hydrogen because we need to keep the heat on in Germany. It gets cold there. 
Uh, but as soon as we can do it, we're going to go to green hydrogen. Now, does that make more sense? It because, would. Because they're going to carbon, get to a green hydrogen. It would if carbon capture was some sort of existing mature plug and play technology, but it, it almost it, never works. Um, it, it could. So the, um, okay. But, but, you know, you're not taking some sure thing and doing that until you've got the better thing working. You have to make this, you know, dodgy temporary Band-Aid fix work first. You spend all that effort <laughs> making it work knowing that it's never going to be a long-term solution. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you well, actually just follow just, uh, the carbon capture projects that are announced, and there was a big one in Australia, um, you know, every month or two, there's a new reason why they can't actually capture the amount of CO2 that they said they were going to. Oh, the sand has clogged up our, you know, whatever. And like, yeah, we well, always knew it was going to be operating in these conditions. And it's just excuse after excuse <laughs> after excuse. And that's, that's how they work. And they don't actually capture carbon. Why will this one be different? So, so the but the what you're saying, Rosemary, is that the effort you're taking all this effort to develop basically duct tape to fix a problem. Why don't you just take that effort and develop green hydrogen? Why why do this step change intermediate thing and just go full force and get it done? Yeah. I mean, but that's that's what you have. R R W E is a handful of offshore wind farms in German waters, right? So they're the perfect right. vehicle for this thing. And Econor, of course, the the Norwegian powerhouse. So the, the, a great team to put this thing together, uh, I think. Um, but yeah, if they would put a little bit more effort in to just go straight to green rather than the, the blue intermediate step, it'd probably be a better better uh, way to move forward. Yeah. And then even better than that, maybe consider whether hydrogen is the right solution to your problem in the first place, because it's basically you know, an energy storage problem. Um, and Germany is one of those countries that's really latched on to hydrogen as a solution. And then they start looking for problems that can be solved by it. Um, whereas, you know, I, as an engineer, preferred to do it the other way around and look at, you know, what's the problem and then what's the best solution. And hydrogen isn't the only option. There's also all kinds of long duration energy storage and more interconnection and, you know, de um, demand flexibility and all those sorts of things. And I do just worry that, you know, hydrogen is um, such a multi-purpose tool that people start applying it everywhere without thinking, is this actually the best, the best way to solve this particular problem? Mm -hmm. Well, we need to get out our rosemary comparison tool. And so what would you rather have? A coal fire plant or a blue hydrogen plant to make electricity? Well, a blue hydrogen Those are your plant options today. is... Yeah, um, I would rather have the existing coal power plant with a phase-out plan and uh, the research dollars spent on a, long, a technology with long-term potential, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm not arguing for all coal power plants to be shut down overnight, and I would certainly spend my development budget. If I was a country, I would spend my development budget on solutions that can scale all the way to zero emissions, not just you know something that's gonna tinker around the edges. Because I mean, carbon capture in, in theory you can capture 100% of emissions, but it's just it gets harder and harder and harder and harder the closer to 100% that you get to. And so one of the contentious things with blue hydrogen is what's the definition of, you know, of clean hydrogen? Is it 99% CO2 capture? Is it 90? And I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty normal um, level that people will choose. Um, mm -hmm. Or is it, you know, 50% in, you know, plenty of people are arguing for that. And um, so there's, there's emissions from that that you're probably going to, yeah, say you can get rid of 90%, could go 99%, but it would cost you, you know, a whole lot more. 
But then there's also all the problems with the supply chain because you're still then taking, you know, trying to extract natural gas and transport it. Um, natural gas is mm. methane, which has a, a global warming potential that's 20 to 100 times more times. than CO2. Yeah. So all of the leakage, right. which, you know, now we've got satellites monitoring these sorts of things. It's like every year we find out that actually there's more and more and more leakage than we ever imagined in the supply chain for um, for gas and for, for coal as well as a lot of methane leakage in um, coal mining. So you, you're never going to get to zero. It's not ever going to be a zero emissions technology, blue hydrogen. So, right. um, yeah, I, I think you need to be honest about about what you, how clean it can ever be, and then think hard about whether that has that technology has any possible role in you know twenty fifty or or beyond, and is it actually worth spending so much effort developing it when there are true zero emissions technologies that could use that development effort now instead? Well, so Rosemary, I think what you're eventually getting down to is having an all electric society versus some combination of hydrogen, probably natural gas and electricity, right? You have a, yeah. a mix. There'll be a place for, for clean hydrogen, for green hydrogen in the future. I mean, not least because we already use hydrogen for a bunch of things that, you, you know, you actually need sure. the hydrogen atom. So it's not going to be um, easy to, to change to something else like, you know, making fertilizer would be a big example of that. Um, And yeah, yeah, and then I don't see much of a place for natural gas far in the future, but I am one of those people that think that um, natural gas is going to play a big complementary role um, as renewables roll out um, because it's so flexible and you can gradually use less and less and less of it in a way that you can't with, with coal. You know, your coal, you can't just turn on for half an hour when you've got a, a spike in demand and, right. you know, there's not much wind around. Um, but the difference between using gas like that and hydrogen, which you could also have a hydrogen turbine that did the same thing, but the difference is that True. we already have the gas turbines. We already have all the gas infrastructure. Those things aren't just going to turn off overnight. So we use them smarter and the less and less and less we use, the less emissions there are. Um, and it doesn't take up, you know, billions of dollars of development money trying to get this technology to work because it already does. And that's the difference between hydrogen sure. and especially blue hydrogen with carbon capture is it's not, it's not ready now. And so, um, y- you know, you're, de- it's, turning our attention away from the real problem, which is electrifying everything as fast as we can quickly. Um, And then, you know, there are legitimately hard problems to solve. Um, You know, there's a a lot of sectors that can't just be easily electrified, like cement and steel, aviation, shipping, um, to name a few. That's where we should be sending our smart engineers that want to work on something that doesn't exist yet. That's what they should be doing, not getting carbon capture to work, which isn't really an engineering problem. It's an economic problem. You know, there's carbon capture in all sorts of other industries that works fine. In um, LNG, they get rid of all of the, they get all the carbon dioxide out of out of that because if you don't, then when you try and liquefy it, then you get, you know, you get freezing and they yeah, suffer a big financial right. penalty. So it's, it's not that we can't do it. It's that we can't do it economically and that's not going to change just because you know, someone wants to make a a small blue hydrogen plant 
you know, it'll be a, a, a tiny amount of new carbon capture um, equipment compared to what's going on in other industries all around the world. So there's no conceivable way that this is going to be the start of, you know, like a really steep um, cost reduction curve like you've seen with, you know, solar panels or lithium-ion batteries because these already these already exist and the major cost involved is all balance of plant stuff. You know, it's like tanks and pipes and heat exchangers, uh, all people. Yeah, it, yeah, it's not stuff that is going to that the yeah the energy transition is going to materially affect the the cost of those things because they're just so you know normal and used in such large volumes. Well, if we end up with some mix of hydrogen, which I think we will, right? In some places of the world, you'll be using hydrogen. I, I know a lot of auto manufacturers in Europe and even in Japan, I think Toyota is still on a hydrogen pathway, at least mm-hmm. for now. BMW is still on it. I think Audi is still toying around with, with hydrogen-powered cars. Some of, the, I, some of the big guys are, too. Like Cummins, Cummins Diesel, like that, the big Yeah, numbers, Cummins has done some things with hydrogen. Well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there are some uses for hydrogen. I don't think it's going to go away. The market will take care of it eventually, right? The, as costs mm. find their way down, you know, what's the cheapest option? And, that, and that's where everybody will eventually it, head. It might. But still, there, there's, there's still a significant part of the world that thinks hydrogen is a possible solution. Oh, yeah, it's huge, a huge part of the world. But you do see use, uses dropping out. Like you are starting to see consensus oh, that sure. the home heating hydrogen is not smart. It's not... Definitely, it's not been totally ruled out, but more and more you are seeing governments say, oh, actually, it doesn't seem to make sense that we use hydrogen for home heating, you know, heat pumps and um, that sort of thing right. is a, a more sensible way to go. But uh, just because it's it, it, whether or not it's the right engineering answer is not the only question. Um, it's also governments have the the possibilities to, possibility to make sure that the economics work out. Like if you take a look at the the US, the this IRA, the IRA um, program, mm-hmm. it's incredibly generous to hydrogen, um, much, much more so than for any other technology. And so I think it's something like a $3 a kilo subsidy for, for hydrogen. And, you know, people's eventual cost targets are like, a dollar a dollar fifty something like that so you know that's a huge subsidy um it, it when you've got that kind of a head start then you know people are going to put attention there and start using it for things that maybe it didn't make sense overall so i do worry that you know it's uh, such a like a shiny shiny attractive thing for politicians to have this you know one tool that can do everything um, and it is getting in the way of, you know, some <laughs> rational engineering trade-offs and, you know, are there better things that you could do with, not just with the development budgets and people, but also, you know, if you're looking at green hydrogen, because hydrogen is so much less efficient than direct electrification, you know, if you want to use hydrogen for home heating, to use a particularly bad example, you want to use hydrogen for home heating instead of a, a heat pump, then you're going to need, like, four or five times as many wind turbines and solar panels to produce electricity than you would right. have otherwise needed. And so it's not just a matter of wasting a bit of money. It is also like really hindering everything else that you could do with that clean electricity if you didn't have to make hydrogen with it. So that's why I think a lot of engineers get quite passionate about, you know, about hydrogen, um, including me, I guess. I get worked up. <laughs> if you haven't noticed. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> But I had a conversation with someone the other day about um, 
internal combustion engines, right? So internal combustion engines, yeah. if you look at the history of them just over the last 30 years, I'm not saying go all the way back to 100 years ago, but just, just 30 years now. And you see that the like the liter of displacement per horsepower or torque, what are your Newton meters or whatever output yeah. has gone so much lower, right? Now you have like, yeah. I mean, and this is performance. I'm talking, I'm not just talking performance engines, but this is an example from the performance engine category. So 5.5 liter, the new Corvette engine, puts out 670 horsepower. A 5.5 liter engine when I was in high school, 15, 20 years ago, would put out 285. And that was like, man, you're really killing it. You're almost at 300 horsepower. So the technology has been borrowed from racing and all these different things, and but put into these cars. So now you're getting the engines are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but so much more efficient on gasoline. That's the problem with hydrogen and natural gas motors is they're so much less in, less efficient because they don't have the BTUs per unit of energy, right? Like you've, you've seen dabbling of compressed natural gas vehicle and this and that, but they have no power. They, they you can use it for city buses and stuff like that and and some heavy haul trucking and trains and, and whatnot but when it really boils down to it, it doesn't have the the energy per btu so or the btus mm -hmm. per unit so but the the conversation was okay you've seen in the last 20 years how you used to get 100 horsepower out of this and now you're getting 300 on gasoline is the same thing going to start happening for hydrogen motors where they're like all of a sudden at some point in time if they keep engineering them down that you know Cummins put that 14 liter, I mean, which is just a beast of a, I mean, it's a huge motor hydrogen power plant, but it's based on a Cummins diesel power plant, but it's just swapped over to you able to use hydrogen. So, but it had to be 14 liters to make the same kind of power that like a yep. six liter diesel engine makes. So at some point in time, will they get the engineering effort become, get efficient enough where hydrogen motors now can just be dropped into a Toyota car and they have the same kind of power that, you know, uh, last generation's internal combustion gas engines had because if that happens then then there might be more of a place for it in the market and I, and i guess that's that's an outside comment to it, everything that you just said rosemary about the the, yeah. the creation of it but it, it was just a, a conversation that i had on the street the other day lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. There's a couple of engineers at Purdue, not engineers, but more professor types, uh, that are working to improve the efficiency of wind turbines. You're like, well, that seems smart right and the, and the issue gets about of uh, that generators like to have constant spinning rotation and wind turbines the blades don't spin that fast so there's a gearbox or something in between electronics to to, to work out the difference uh, well the produce solution which they're going to patent or in the middle of patenting and are trying to license the technology uh, uses the wind turbine to create hydraulic pressure and in a sense, the, the goal is you can use this hydraulic pressure and transmit power via hydraulic tubes that are filled not with hydraulic fluid, but with water to some place where then you can turn a generator. So you can, can use the hydraulic power to spin a generator and Bob's your uncle. There you go. So the, the, whole, the whole system is such that 
you could have, and Rosemary, this is where I need your expertise on connecting wind turbines together. You could take four or five wind turbines, connect them all together hydraulically, and drive one generator like on the surface of the water in an offshore situation. Does that make, does that seem like a plausible thing to do? It just seems like to me, there's like losses here that are substantial. And and the Purdue engineers are saying that the powertrain is up to 90% more efficient than current systems. That doesn't make sense to what I know about hydraulics versus electrics. Yeah. It, uh, it, and gearboxes. It's a weird way Does to that make sense? phrase it 90% more efficient because I mean, the drivetrain is already more than 90% efficient. So it's, what are they saying that, you know, if there's, you know, 5% say um, efficiency loss, then this right. is going to save four and a half percent of that. It's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's a weird way to phrase it. And I think it's, I think it's one of those things where it's probably true on paper that they can, um, you know, end up with less uh, losses, but they're probably doing a really, really common kind of early stage startup kind of mistake, Mm -hmm. which is that they compare their ideal on paper design against the real world of the alternative. So, you know, a standard transmission, we already know every single loss that that comes because they've been put in place, we've tried to solve the problems, um, this is what you have to wear. Whereas when a design is only on paper, you haven't realized all of the losses that you're going to have yet. So, you know, they'll have, when they go to implement this system in reality, um, you know, starting with a... (laughs) a lab scale, small, small system, and then moving up bigger and bigger until it is a whole wind farm. Um, you're going to encounter problems at every scale up stage. And the solution to that is going to chip away at that, you know, efficiency improvement that they're expecting. And so, I yeah. mean, every, that's true for any alternative technology that, you know, you, you start with, that you're always going to start off thinking it's going to be better and then the real world is going to you know chip away and um a good technology you'll still be left with something that's better than the status quo and so then that will you know go ahead and be the new mainstream but in most cases the real world actually you know it it takes the whole the whole benefit that you're expecting is lost to things that you weren't expecting so in most cases you will see oh there's this problem that we have to solve and now instead of a 90% efficiency gain it's 80% and okay so then now there's another one that we have to solve and there goes another 20% and you know by the time you get to the end you end up with something very similar that costs a lot more or you end up with something that's actually performs a little bit a little bit worse um, and or at least there's not enough benefit that there's any point in someone making such a major major change because of course you know the existing system um, they're, they're fairly reliable by now and, you know, supply chains and um, maintenance procedures are all in place. If you're just going to scrap that for, you know, like a 1% efficiency gain to something totally new, you're going to have, you know, a few decades of pain while you try and figure out how to make this new system work reliably um, and, you know, cost effectively and it's not going to be worth it for anybody. So, yeah, the Debbie, Debbie Downer in me is, this... sees that as the most likely outcome for this. But if no one ever started a project because it will probably fail, then you wouldn't see any new technology, uh, I think. Well, oh, okay. So, let, let and Joel, I want to loop you into this being an oil gas person. And Joel and I were discussing earlier about some of the subsea uh, oil and gas things that are happening. And it looks like there's a lot of piping and plumbing connecting things together. I think the concept makes sense. 
Like it would be great if you could connect wind turbines together and drive one big turbine. And so you 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 basically can maybe simplify the system from a theoretical standpoint. But is it? And every technician, wind turbine technician around the world is going to chime into this. Is it because engineers have no clue how difficult? the real world is. And when we get to a university, we get another step removed from sort of real world application. How are you going to make this thing work? And that every technician sitting in a wind turbine right now listening to the podcast is going, yeah, there's no freaking way that's going to happen. <laughs> like just, it's obvious. Yeah. Right? Is, is, that the, is that the disconnect? Because it, it, there's just so many unknown, unknowns you just don't think about. And it's Rosemary's right that the people that are actually on the on the ground doing the difficult work and actually making power just to see it every day they see they see how real things work yeah i'm thinking about the the concept of the thing right so in my mind uh trying to connect like you say alan to the the technicians in the field right now i see the exact same turbine uh everything but instead of having a generator up tower right behind the gearbox is like a centrifugal supercharger that Pulls in yep. a that pulls in a closed loop water system and pressurizes right. it. And once you get that pressurized water system moving, it'll. And if you could connect two, three, four, five of these things together, I'm thinking on the surface on onshore. Uh, but you'd right. have to have you'd have to have an odd system mix of like a hybrid mix of rigid and flexible piping. Because if you had flexible piping the whole way, you'd end up with losses. No matter how good losses. a piping you make, if you're right. putting that much pressure right. through, you have loss. So if you put yep. if you put a, a rigid piping system in and then connected it all, now that's something that you need to maintain twenty four seven. You know, of course, it'd be easy to see pressure losses and stuff and go find them. But um, but right. either way, that that's what I'm seeing is like a big supercharger driven off there that that's that centrifugal push, and then a, a closed loop system that has X amount of RV antifreeze type water in it so it doesn't freeze in wintertime. Driving one well, big generator. Yes. <laughs> I think you're but right about know. the freezing part. Yeah. That's what I thought. But like, I, well, it's cold out there. You know, even in Texas, it gets cold and but, but it the, would freeze, but the, right? The simple engineering question is, and this is a maybe a, more of a rosemary question, but is if you're generating X amount of power at five different stations and then putting it into one, are you actually is it physically possible to actually multiply that energy? Or not? Or does it just make sense to make it at each one of them and put it into the grid? Or is it? Or would you be doing that to put for right. less or for easier O and M strategy, where instead of having five generators, you've got one big one and it's easier to maintain? Uh, just, just thoughts. Yeah, I think it's it's possible in theory to say a benefit, um, but I think that what Alan said is is right. That you know, you ask people that are in the field maintaining systems whether they think this is a better better one and and they'll tell you no and i think that they would be right 99 percent of the time and so i guess um that's you know the whole point of uh you know new te new technology is that someone has to be that one to take you know be you need to have a lot of people making these one in a hundred mm -hmm. bets to get the occasional one that works out and you know have um you know technology yeah. evolution yeah. so you need both. You need the technicians in the field that know how things really work in practice. And then you need people in the lab who have no clue about the real world and are just, you know, dreaming big. Um, and they're naive and they're probably going to fail. Each, each one of them is probably going to fail. But yeah, one in a hundred is going to not fail and going to surprise the, you know, the technicians and the, the engineers in between them. So yeah. Mm. 
I don't know if you could ever surprise a technician. They have a pretty good sense <laughs> of what will work or not. Yeah, we had, we yeah, had they're an pretty astute. We had an awesome poster in one of my old offices that was a picture of a technician in the field and then a picture of an engineer from the office standing next to him with perfectly clean clothes, brand new safety vest, brand new white hard hat. And it said, mm. I don't know how to do your job, but my book says you're doing mm. it wrong. And the technicians love love the picture because it's you know how many times you run into this someone comes on you're like hey, dang engineers are here again you know yeah well so all true continuing on this flow about technicians having a pretty good sense of what will work and what won't work uh, there's a French company called Eolink that is building this sort of trapezoid is that the right word no it's not it's like a pyramid sorry pyramid I've lost track of my geometry it's a pyramidal shape quadrumid quadrumid yeah. <laughs> so it's got a it's got a wind turbine that design that has um, the the blades are in between sort of the two triangular towers and it makes this pyramid shape and then it's it, it would the reason this all makes sense for offshore wind is there's a lot less steel involved particularly underneath the water so they basically float this pyramid with this wind turbine on two bearings front and the rear bearing and the blades are in between it. The comps has been tossed around quite a bit, but Eolink is actually doing it, which is the unique piece of this. Now, Rosemary talked about another program we'll talk about here shortly, but Eolink is working on a demonstrator that they think will be about 30% less materials by weight than comparable uh, designs today. So that that's a huge cost savings, right? That you can simplify, lower your costs. It makes a lot of sense. They have funding uh, to go off and do this. So they're going to make a five megawatt, megawatt demonstrator that uh, weigh about 1,100 tons and with a, a base that's about uh, 50 meters per side. That's, that's a big turbine. Obviously, five megawatts is a big turbine. And the rotor is going to have about 140 uh, meter diameter. But they have about 25 million U.S. dollars already in the system to go make this full-scale test turbine. Now, this gets to one of my pet peeves in America is that we don't we talk about a lot of stuff, but we don't actually go out and do it. Right? This is not uh, the Eolink is like the Oval and Wilbur Wright of this pyramid design. They're actually putting their money where their mouth is, and they're going to go out and they're going to go do this thing in a big in a big scale. The five megawatt turbine is nothing to, to shake a stick at. That's you know, Bob's your uncle. There you go. Five megawatts would prove that this is a conceivable, recognizable, workable concept that could be expanded into a larger area. They're, they think they can pump out like 60, 70 turbines per port doing this. The, just simplicity wise. Now, there are other companies. I know T Omega is talking about doing the similar thing, uh, but they don't have the funding yet. They're still looking for funding. They're in like a Series A round at the moment. Meanwhile, Eolink's going to be doing this in like 2024. This thing's going to be in the water in 2024. What is what what is driving the difference between an America versus a France in the offshore wind industry? How did Eolink manage to do this in America? We're just sort of generally talking about it now. What happened? So can I add in? I'll give you. I'll give you a couple. Oh, can I add in that um, there's also the Danish Stasdale. They have a, a instead of a square pyramid, yes. they've got a tetrahedron. So that's a pyramid with a triangular base, um, and their design is is different because it's you know this tetrahedron with the normal wind turbine 
lollipop on on top of it um whereas the others are yeah putting the the rotor in between the two sets of of legs um but the steesdale one they already did a 3.6 megawatt um prototype 2021 yes. so and I know the Steesdale approach, I actually toured one of their um, their thermal energy storage projects, but they've got kind of the similar design philosophy or development philosophy for all of the technologies in that suite. It's a, a company started by, um, I think it's Hendrik Steesdale, who was like the grandfather of Danish wind energy, had some, you know, pretty pretty impressive um, contributions towards, you know, the regular, regular wind turbines. But the, the philosophy is, you know, take the important... Um, problems that need to be solved in the energy transition and then do it with, you know, proven solutions from other industries so that you can get something fast and reliable and, and cheap just, you know, out there soon. And so, yeah, right. the idea was to take, not not do something really out there, do something that you know is going to work um, so that you can get moving on it fast. And, and so that's what they did with their, um, with their, what do they call it? Um, yeah, the it Tetra. Tetra Spa. Tetra yeah, Tetraspar. Tetraspar. Yeah, because the, te- the Tetra the Tetraspar base is an oil and gas old school design. That design Bingo. has been used for spars offshore since the seventies. So it's just hey, take this down, take the same thing, shrink it down. We know how it works, and then let's take a turbine that works that we know works, made them up, and now we've got a product. Yeah. So it's nearly like the opposite is of what we were talking it, about with this new new drivetrain. You, you know, you um, you yeah. you're not going <laughs> yeah. for the one and a hundred. You're going for the ninety nine and a hundred in in this case. Um, and you know, and they're a few years ahead right. of the the alternatives. So yeah, I think it's a good good strategy to have in the mix. But don't you need yeah, both? I think you need both definitely. Rosemary, don't don't you need both? I mean, you need need the one and a hundred, but you need the ninety nine and a hundred in the tra- in the yes. transition. There you go, but. It doesn't seem like in a this. I, I'm trying to find cool things that are happening in America in wind turbines. It's really hard. So, so the piece that I, the thing that I was thinking about was uh, looking at innovation, uh, not not necessarily cultures, but markets for the French versus the U.S. Right. So f- the U.S. is just coming into floating wind. Uh, we've been eyeing up fixed bottom wind for a while offshore, uh, but now just going, hey, now we've got floating. The French have been eyeing up floating wind because they know that's the majority of anything they have right. offshore for a long time. So like Technique FMC is what I was talking about. Uh, well, now it's Technique Energies. They're a French company. They have a huge office in Houston. They're 40,000 employees wow. globally or whatever. They're huge. But they invested in the X1 wind platform, which is the one that has like the platform and then the front with the, the 90 degree angle on the back with right. the hub on the front of the... Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of energy being put forth out of France, just like it is in Norway right now, why they, you know, high wind tampon and Econor are getting into the floating, because that's all they have for a resource for offshore. The great uh, wind resource onshore in, in France has been, for the most part, kind of developed. So now they have to move offshore, or they don't have to, but they can, they can infill. But to move offshore, they have deep water. So they've got to figure out floaters. And that's why more more uh, investment has been putting into like EOLink and stuff. Whereas in the U S it's like, man, we've got so much space and some other, so many other things going on. We're more kind of flock shooting at some of these energy projects, not really getting anything done where over there, they're more focused on, we know we need this. Let's work on this. That's, that's just a couple of, that's a couple yeah. of thoughts. I don't know if it's a hundred percent right or not. I don't know. It, it, it is very odd that basically very similar projects exist in multiple countries. Same concept. But there's some yeah. countries are so, so I mean, far ahead. If, if you're, 
if you're French as well, you've been staring at out the northern part of your country, your northern door. You've been staring at offshore wind for the last 30 years. So it's been there. It's been in True. your face. They've been looking yeah. at it, right? Where we just, just haven't. Well, you know, like we've had five turbines in uh, Block Island for the last few years. That's it. And the majority of the country doesn't even know they exist. Yeah. True. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.